So hello, everyone. My name is Wes Bush. I'm the author of the book on product-led growth. And I have here none other than Ramley, my co-host, and Sam, who is from OpenView. And so Sam and I have been bumping into each other again and again, whether it's at conferences or just in the product-led growth community. And so one of the things I love whenever chatting with Sam is just metrics. She knows her metrics and so many things around what drives product-led companies to the next level. And so for those that don't know you, Sam, can you just share a little bit of a story around how you became the director of growth at OpenView? Yeah. So I had originally started my career in consulting, which was a long time ago, but I moved into paid acquisition and I had done a ton of stuff around paid search, which your followers probably have been in as well. And it's, I mean, it's a very analytical field. It turns a lot of people into product-led growth converts because you just see millions and millions of dollars going to Google every single day and being less effective every single month. And then I had moved over to Dispatch, which is actually a very traditional field sales company. But I was given the role of our head of customer success. And from there, one of the things that we did was we sold into very large enterprises and we we were asked to bring those large enterprises networks of third-party service providers onboard our software platform. So imagine a world in which you are asked to onboard thousands and thousands of plumbers, appliance repairmen, and handymen onto a software platform that they've never seen before. Oh, and with no budget. So it was really challenging and it was really exciting because they were just like, do this however you can. You're not getting any money to do it. So I really started playing around with building not only a traditional customer success team, like getting people actually learning how to, to become onboarded, but you know, playing with the levers of onboarding using really like this was really early days. I was actually a beta tester of Pendo and app queues, you know, putting those things in the application. And then also like taking a look at our product and taking a look at the things that people were doing in our product and understanding what we're massive value adds for them and what was creating these hooks inside of the product and starting to measure those things and starting to sort of track those things and then getting really nosy and starting to get into those product roadmap conversations and you know starting to become more strategic. So it was a really weird career trajectory, but I was doing that at Dispatch and I was owning a lot of different parts of product and growth and marketing and strategy. And then a friend of mine had actually come to work at OpenView and they were looking for someone with like a PLG background who sort of knew their stuff. So they reached out to me and now I work here. <laughs> so it was quite a story. It was very unexpected, but it's awesome because now at OpenView, I'm able to work with our portfolio companies and prospects on becoming more product-led and really helping them isolate and execute on initiatives that will really help them become more product-led and really start those frameworks early on so that they can start to grow at a, at a faster clip. Absolutely. And one of the things I love, I mean, if you could cut your teeth learning product-led growth on any particular market. I think the less tech-savvy the market is, the just like a much higher bar you have <laughs> as a product-led growth leader. Yeah. Because I remember one of the first consulting clients I had, it was helping like HVAC companies. So like whether it's heating, cooling, and plumbing and all those fun things. And so it was just like, uh, you really had to simplify things because these weren't like tech natives. <laughs> they were just used to doing stuff with their hands. Yeah. And you had to make things really straightforward. So I think it's a great place to start. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's an awesome audience, and you know really quickly whether or not you're making them happy or not. Too, they react in a, a time span that I really like. Absolutely, and when you really do a good job, they're very vocal too, which I love. Yeah. And so, 
Given that OpenView coined the whole kind of term product-led growth, like how do you really define this? So what really attracted to me product-led growth and what I like to think about from a venture capitalist perspective, I'm not a venture capitalist, but I sit next to them all day, every day, is I actually, I mentioned before that I worked in paid acquisition, especially digital marketing. And I was you know, responsible for keeping the LTV cap at a certain number. So basically my boss said, Sam, like, we'll give you anything you want as long as you can acquire customers for three times less than they actually end up paying us. So that magic number was three, that LTV cap ratio. And I started to see how incredibly challenging that was. And I started to see the fact that we were sending a ton of money to Google, we were spending a ton of money and we would send all these leads to the sales team and they perhaps wouldn't close on them the right way or they wouldn't like sell them the way I wanted to or anything like that. And I just saw a ton of waste. And I was at a startup. I had equity in this company. I had shares. It was still pretty young, but I felt like true ownership of it. And I would see that you know VC money coming in and going directly into, into buying leads, into trying to get them for the sales team. And I would see these massive sales teams and, and their salaries. And I would think, this is just so incredibly wasteful. So now that I'm sitting on the other side of the table and I... you know helping our team decide which companies to fund or like helping decide who to put more money into. I keep thinking, how can we be more efficient with capital? Like all of these companies, you know, capital's really cheap right now and you know it's easy to get a lot of capital and you see a lot of inflated companies like, I don't know, for example, Service Titan that have raised a ton of money who are just burning through it with massive sales team, massive paid search, those sorts of things. And I mean I grew up during the recession. So I just I keep remembering like over and over again you know, these fun times are going to end, you know, these times are going to end. So at OpenView, we want to find these companies that are much more capital efficient. And the really like proven way to do that is to become a product led growth business, sort of open up your company to make your lead generation efforts pretty much free or very cheap. At least you're just paying to Amazon storage, you're not paying to Google. And that message always really resonated with me. I never really put a name on it like OpenView has. But as soon as I had heard the, the OpenView PLG mantra, I was like, yes, this is it. This is what I've been thinking my whole life. Where can I sign? Absolutely. And so for people that hear product like growth, I mean, there's going to be some skeptical people who are like, you know, this whole thing's a fad. Like, what are your thoughts? Obviously, you're biased. But <laughs> let's hear Well, I mean, we have very critical conversations about this every single day. You know, I'm not sure product-led growth is right for every single company out there. I mean, I think that you know, if you're selling hardware or things like that, maybe like you obviously can't have a product-led growth business. I think B2B software in and of itself sometimes, especially when you're selling, you know, like an Oracle or any sort of major program like that, like an ADP, where you're basically asking a company to trust you with everything that they have. Those are sorts of businesses that I'm not sure will ever become product-led. And I'm, I'm okay with that. But I, I do think that in terms of product-led, product-led is more a methodology or in a go-to-market motion. And I think, you know, like anything, there are bits and pieces that you can really take from this that have been you know, tested and created by really, really smart people in the industry. And I think all businesses can learn from those things. And I think PLG in and of itself has learned a lot from B2C. You know, we think about like companies like Rothy's or like all those direct-to-consumer mattress companies and things like that. PLG is really the origination of taking learnings from B2C and really applying them. Basically, like applying what we want as consumers and applying that to business software sales. And I think that everyone can do that. 
I'm not saying like every single company is going to be able to open up their funnel and have like a freemium model and fire all their salespeople. But I am saying that, you know, they can learn to really create for the end user. We're also very energy efficient. here. <laughs> Perfect. And so I really like that distinction too, because I think a lot of people just think, oh, this whole product and growth notion, it just applies to, you know, SaaS companies. It's just not true. There is so many incredible examples. I mean, even just look at Costco. I was there yesterday and there's all these samples. I'm like, sure, let me try your product, see if it's good. If it is, then I might just buy it. Mm -hmm. And if not, then it's okay. It's just part of the buying journey. And people love to try before they buy. And I really think the buying experience has changed. And it's really, like you mentioned, modeled after the B2C place. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, one of the reasons why I decided let's double down on product-led growth Because this trend isn't changing. This is just how we like to buy. And so I think that's really a great point that you mentioned. But for the people who are listening, who are really just thinking about, you know, I've heard about product-led growth, but how can I build a business that is more product-led? Like, How do people even start or go into that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think the concern is more of a chicken and the egg problem. I see like really amazing products like businesses that sometimes they just lightning strikes and they build a business that people really want to have. Like they build something that's super viral. Like you look at Dropbox, I feel like people started copying their sort of referral, like trying to create that viral loop. And I'm not sure Dropbox had this like massive strategic vision that said, hey, we're going to create this incredibly efficient go-to-market engine by just having these referrals and we know they're going to take off and they're going to do really great. But what they did do is they actually had like this culture from the very beginning where they measured how effective everything they did was. And they, they started actually creating experiments on the fly and giving every single person who worked at that business the ability to be creative and to start thinking about these types of experiments. It was really a, a cultural shift more than a strategic initiative. So it it really didn't come from the top down. It came from the bottom up. And I think if you're building a PLG company today from scratch, or you're taking a massive Fortune 500 company and you're saying, how do we become more PLG? I think the answer is culturally, A, making it acceptable to fail. B, creating an environment where experimentation is not only embraced, but super viable. I've seen a lot of companies that are just like, a bunch of different systems and like a bunch of different owners and a bunch of different silos where experimentation is impossible, let alone like failing at an experiment because then you, you know, you get totally shamed and then see being able to measure everything. So I think that really plays into point B and having this sort of the mechanisms for experimentation. I'm not going to go into like a specific tool set and say like, Hey, you have to use optimizely or something like that. But just being able to measure your experiments and be able to show that they work so all those critics who are in the boardroom with you can actually see that they are working, those are really important too. And that's where I've seen a lot of places fail is like they'll just have one owner, they'll have like really rickety frameworks for experimentation that aren't really very good and then don't give you a ton of confidence in the data that's coming out. And those are real problems and that's where you start to see things like status quo just keep going. And where does one start? if you want to have that culture of experimentation, because I mean, out of all the product-led companies I've talked to, they just are doing this. And it's a culture of experimentation. And like, how do you get that? Because a lot of sales-led companies, they just don't have that culture yet. And they need to get there and just take baby steps, baby experiments to at least get on the right track. Yeah. I mean, I could be totally wrong here, but in my experience, what I've seen is that 
we can't coddle product and put them in this tower. We can't like say like, oh, product is the only one who knows how to do this. So the only ones who can run experiments, you know, they're the smartest ones in the house. So we have to let them run the show. I think it comes from sort of a cultural respect. Like you have to have respect ingrained in your, in your business, which sounds weird because every company should have like respect for everyone as human beings. But I've worked at several places where that's not true. And, you know, product deserves respect, but they're not the only ones who deserve respect is what I'm saying. So I've seen a lot of really awesome initiatives come out of the sales team, you know, even though like in a product led business, uh, an initiative, you know, might actually reduce the need for sales or those sorts of things. But not just turning around and saying, you know, products, the geniuses, they're the ones who are actually going to think of these awesome, like, quote unquote, growth hacks, like allow both the forums and the mechanisms for someone from support or someone like that to actually drive these experiments and think creatively because everyone has a really great voice and they know your product front to back and they don't have to be a product person to be that, like to have that voice. I want to talk a little bit about data and how you know teams can implement product analytics. I, I'm guessing that's a big part of product-led is measuring the right things because that's pretty much foundation of experimentation. So how would companies go about selecting and implementing product analytics? Yeah, I mean, I would say product analytics is one of the hairiest issues and, you know, there's no silver bullet for everyone. But what I've really seen is that there's sort of two camps. There's companies that start and understand the value of product analytics, but they might do something that's like really not scalable in order to understand how people are performing in their product, or they'll put on something that's really heavy and inaccessible for the rest of their business. So I've seen companies that just monitor every single thing. Maybe they're smart and they're using something like Segment. And then they're storing that data somewhere and then they don't have any tools for just the average person at the business to actually access that data and ask the right questions. Or I see businesses that just didn't really value product analytics. They go by gut. And this is more than you would think. And they go by gut or they'll use like basic things like a marketing tool where they're like, they're taking a look at sort of like vanity metrics or they're just taking a look at like top line numbers, like number of visitors to the website, number of visitors to the app, daily active use, those sorts of things. And those are the two major pitfalls that I've seen. But I think when I'm guiding portfolio companies implementing product analytics, first of all, it's a long process and there needs to be like one owner and that owner needs to be able to work really well across different functions. I've seen product analytics get really siloed in either product or engineering. And that gives it sort of this twisted voice. Then someone from marketing is going to have no idea that these things exist. And they're not going to be able to measure like a true customer journey. Or someone from sales is not going to understand like how they can pull information to understand how qualified a lead is or anything like that. So I would say first thing is, you know, get a true owner. Expect them to be working on this project for like six months to a year if they want to do it really well. And then second... Outline as a business, like a strategic business decision of like what questions you're going to be asking of the data. I would ask every single head of every single department to say like, what are your top 10 questions of our product analytics like that you want to know if people are doing in the product? And I would almost like have a workshop or something like that to get that information from folks. I find more often than not, people implement product analytics without any real questions they want to answer. And then when you actually come to it with questions, you realize you're not tracking any of the things that you need to be tracking. And then you're behind by six months, if not more. So come to it with questions first. Yeah. Yeah. Like what are those questions that you start with? Because that's a really great thing that you mentioned. Well, and the questions don't have to be right. They just need to be directionally correct, right? 
So you think about, you know, traditional PLG things, like people always dream about like finding their own true North star metric, like an activation metric, like an aha moment. So, you know, identifying what those possible triggers in your product could be and starting to monitor those is really helpful. Understanding the customer journey from payment to churn. So, I mean, I've seen businesses where they're not necessarily sure who's paying and who's churn and those sorts of things and able to turn off free and paid features based on that. So those are really important, especially if you want to monetize and, you know, be capital efficient. And then, you know... Asking yourself, how are people finding my product is really important. Typically, that's been left to marketers. But in the world where freemium exists, you really want to understand what was the first touch? What was the first thing that really introduced them to the product? Was it an ad on Instagram if you're you know, Monday? Or was it you know, a referral from someone else? People get really excited about like multi-touch attribution models and things like that to understand a user's journey. But in reality, people aren't making like logical buying decisions. They're really like finding you some way. And then perhaps they read about you in a lot of different ways. And then they enter your product and start using it. So understanding at least that first touch and how they found you is great. That way you can also see, are they organic or are they inorganic? Like are you know things like talking about us on the Today Show or something like that working for us and driving a lot of organic traffic? Or is something like paid search, we're, we're actually doing it really well and we're driving a lot of folks who are converting with inorganic ways. And then finally, you also really want to understand where people are having trouble in the application. So a lot of the questions that we'll see, especially we'll ask of the portfolio are really like, what are your churn rates? And like, how long is it taking people to churn? It's shocking how many people don't really timestamp a lot of different things. So like you might know that someone's used XYZ feature, but you and you might even know how many times they do it, but you don't understand when they're doing it in their user journey. So you really have to think about the questions that you're asking about your users, like what are they using? How are they using it? And then thinking about other elements and columns in the data that you can create on your own if you had a timestamp. So a lot of times I'll do a cohort analysis and say, Okay, so for every week, we have X number of users that entered and we used this thing. What if we cut that by folks where it was just their first seven days in the application? Maybe they signed up earlier or something like that. And you just really need to timestamp everything. And that's like actually one of the biggest pitfalls I've seen too. And do you have like any specific metrics that you look at for that first onboarding experience? Because yesterday, we were actually talking with Francois, who is the head of growth at Deputy just one of your portfolio companies. And he was fascinated, absolutely fascinated with the first seven minutes of the experience. And when you think about it, most companies will lose anywhere from 40 to 60% of their people. Whenever they sign up, that first experience, they will leave and not come back, which is kind of scary when you think about like for some of the customer acquisition costs, we're paying for every single person to come, just basically lighting half of that on fire is is quite a lot of money. And so that experience is very profitable if you do it right Mm -hmm. and very unprofitable if you you don't know what you're doing. And so what should people be looking for in that first experience to really understand how to improve that first experience? Yeah, well, so this is when I would use sort of like console side data. So I like to think about data in terms of console side, which is just like, what they're doing in the browser. So like what buttons are they clicking and then how long are they taking to do these things versus server-side data, which is just like, how many users did they add? You know, how many form fields did they fill out in my settings or something like that? 
So this is when I really like to take a look at that console side data because I think that's going to be more indicative than anything else. So one thing that we always do is we take a look at that length of that first session and use that as one of the ways to understand sort of like a lead score, like how successful someone's going to be using the application. Because if they come in and then they only spend like a few minutes in it, they're just really not that interested. We always take a look at their first seven events as well. So if they come in and they're just clicking around and nothing makes a rhyme or reason, that's a little interesting to us. But if they do follow like a prescribed... Like most applications I see nowadays have a checklist or things like that. And if they start to follow it, then we'll put them in a different bucket. And then like following those first seven events is also going to help you as a product owner understand are the things that I think should make sense, making sense from a user experience perspective. Like, does this feel like the right progression of things for this user? Or is there something else I need to identify? And then finally, we'll also take a look at what I call housekeeping behaviors. So you always want someone to add their users, to add some sort of personal information, etc. on that first visit. So we'll understand whether or not they've done those things and how far they've progressed. So that first visit really is important. And then again, how you acquired that first person, like what channel they came in through, how they found you. We like to use search console information or keyword information. And then I start to really bucket that by those things and start to understand, okay, for you know this persona who comes in this way, do we need to have a different onboarding experience for them because they seem to be searching for one thing and then not finding it. So that also really helps build the case for personalization, which is becoming very hot in the world of onboarding as well. Oh, absolutely. And whenever it comes to just improving that onboard experience even further, one of the things you mentioned at the beginning is just the power of activation, understanding what that is for your business. And I agree. A lot of times, even with companies that I'm working with, when they're, they don't know, like, what is a product called by lead? A lot of times I tell them, like, if really, as long as it's providing value to your user, just pick something and get it everywhere. You want everyone to look at that metric because is just going to have a power within your team as almost like a unifying metric. If we can focus on success and helping people become successful, we'll get there eventually and we can refine that metric. But how do you approach it? I'm really curious to hear when people are trying to understand like, what is my activation metric? What is this? How do you approach it? Yeah. So I have a three-pronged framework that I use that we use here at OpenView generally. But so we always say to ourselves... Activation needs to be done within an easily accessible amount of time. I actually have a visual that I'll use during the talk about this. Activation needs to be performed within a certain amount of time. So we ask ourselves a bunch of different questions. Is this metric easily achieved by most users? Can this metric be completed quickly? So again, as I was talking about like that certain amount of time, we think between 7 and 28 days, depending on the product, is really valuable. Is this metric predictive of retention? So when I take a look at this metric and I look at people who've churned and people who haven't churned, is there a massive difference? And then finally, does this correlate to business performance? So when I take a look at people who've converted and who haven't converted, is there a major difference between like this action that they've taken and for the non-converters, the same action? I mean, based on a product, I'll take like the top 10 features and run it through that question. Like, is greater than 50% of all users actually achieving this? Are they doing it relatively quickly? Does it correlate to churn? And does it correlate to conversion? And those are the four questions that I ask for every single metric. And usually it separates things really quickly because most people just don't fully use your product. And there's probably only one or two features who are even going to make that first question. 
Absolutely. And what are the most common mistakes you see people make whenever trying to decide what that activation metric is? They make it too complicated. Yeah, they make it too complicated. A lot of people get really excited about the notion of health scoring, which I hope is going by the wayside. I'm not seeing it as much as I used to, but they'll like they'll create like a blended score from a bunch of different touch points. And that's like impossible to explain to a salesperson or a marketing person or a customer support person. And nor does anyone really care. And like a CEO is not going to care about that at all. So you really have to make it simple. And people will also take like a data scientist or things like that to actually like go and find this. They think that they're finding this like magic lever in their product. And again, just keep it really simple because just having that true north to steer towards is going to be so much better for your business. If you get that metric three months earlier than you would have if you'd have had like this data science project or something like that, it's going to make a massive, massive impact. I think with activation metrics, you have to constantly be going back and asking yourself, confirming if it is accurate and if it does have that impact on the business. But generally what I'm finding is that it's better to have one sooner rather than later so that you have that thing to work towards with your entire team. As part B to that question, I would say activation metrics often get siloed because they're so complicated. People don't understand them and they get stuck in product or they'll be specific to each sort of product add-on or feature, which is a little challenging too because it's hard to explain to everyone. You really want to harness the entire business behind an activation metric You want to sort of be thinking about how can we compensate salespeople towards driving towards this metric? How can we compensate marketing towards driving towards this metric? How do we get everyone thinking and talking about it? Because that's where your great experiments are going to come from too. But how do you do that? (laughs) I mean, again, it goes back to your business's culture. How do I prevent siloed businesses? I'm not necessarily sure that I would be working at OpenView if I had the answer to that. I'd probably be creating my own business. But it does come from sharing and it does come from respect. What I do find is that you know folks who have this like deep experience in marketing or deep experience in product, they may not have as much respect for someone who came in and they're just a new marketer. They came in and they're just a new product person. And that leads to these silos because you're thinking, oh, well, my team does it best. We know what's best. We do it best. And you really have to change that. And honestly, if I were a founder running a company, that would be like the first thing I would look for in every single employee. One of the things I admire most about Amazon and I admire a lot about Amazon is that they really put their managers through the grinder before they make someone a people manager. You have to get like letters of recommendation from other managers. You have to really go through a lot of tests and a lot of structure. And I think, you know, as a founder, you might feel one way, but like your VPs or your directors, they're the ones who are really setting the stage for the rest of your business and whether or not it has these silos and whether or not people are going to be in this collaborative, respectful atmosphere. And you really have to control for that. And you really have to hire the best people who are really going to help shape that part of your organization. One of the major pitfalls I've seen in my career is that people will hire someone with like the best pedigree from like where they came from or you know what they achieved or those sorts of things, but they don't see that that person is like a great match for the folks that they already have at their business. And then you start to really start to see these land battles and that's where you start to see the silos and that's where it starts to get less fun in the startup world. Yeah, I'm with you. I can't handle that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. And so just while we're wrapping up, like what is the one piece of advice you would give to a company or any company really that is transitioning to become more product-led? Focus, focus, focus. People think that they can do everything overnight. These things take time. Obviously, the Titanic couldn't be turned very quickly. So you probably don't think that you could be either. Bite off one piece that you... I mean, there are a lot of different levers that make a PLG business. One thing is you know, creating 
product qualified leads by implementing product analytics and those sorts of things. But you really need to, or one thing is also like creating an awesome onboarding experience with a freemium product. If you try to do those two things together just in one year as a massive organization, you would fail on all parts. But if you know you broke that into bite-sized pieces and started implementing A, product analytics, or B, just opening up a freemium model and all of the fun things that come with it from a billing perspective and a financial perspective, etc., you're probably going to be much more successful in the long run if you just bite off a small piece of it. Unfortunately, a lot of product-led businesses are product-led from their very beginning. But as I said previously, you don't necessarily need to adopt all of these things to become a product-led business. You really have to take a deep look at your business and really figure out what's going to work best for you. For example, if 90% of your business is sales-led and you don't have a freemium model or you have like a free trial and only 10% of folks are ever using the application, perhaps it's not worthwhile to actually look at their usage behaviors to understand and like drive more conversion. Perhaps something else, you want to do something else that's further up the funnel. So I always find myself getting really excited about all kinds of new tools and things that you can do with product-led growth. But you really have to see what's going to make the biggest impact for your business and not try and optimize just like you know, a little 5% or a little 1% uh, ratio. One of the things you mentioned here, we heard it in our previous talk with Jeff, who's the head of marketing at Clearbit. And he really is a big advocate of just starting with a product-led business. And then he can go, always go up from there and add sales at a later point. Yeah. But I want to hear both sides of it. So what are some reasons for starting a product-led business from the very beginning? And what are some reasons why you might even want to consider having a more sales-led business? Well, so I've actually found in my past that having a, a sales or, you know, like at least inbound sort of led business and thinking about HubSpot because they're like literally in my backyard, you're going to have a much faster user feedback loop because you're going to have those sales folks sitting next to the product folks and like actually telling them what users are saying. And I think the biggest challenge for a product-led business is that we're always looking at the folks who are using our product and trying to optimize for them. But we don't typically think about the people who passed on our business at the top of the funnel. So from a sales-led perspective, you're hearing from those people who are saying, no, you guys aren't good enough for me. Maybe your pricing doesn't work or you know, maybe you just don't have the product market fit. And I think sometimes when you go product-led from the beginning, you're so deeply entrenched in the product and the folks who are actually giving your product a shot that you're really ignoring the rest of that group, which could be a much larger piece of the market and could make you a billion dollar company, you know? Awesome. And so before we end, is there anything else, whether it's around product-led growth, the metrics you need to have in your business, is there anything you want to leave with the audience listening just as a, a quick piece of feedback? Yeah, I wanted to add a quick plug. So here at OpenView, we feel really strongly about benchmarking because you know, you as a product owner, you as a growth folk person or a growth person, you're going to be feeling a little lonely at most organizations. Unfortunately, most organizations don't have like tens of growth practitioners or you know, a bunch of product folks who are working all on the same product. So one thing that we are sort of debuting this year in 2020 is our product benchmarks. So similar to our SaaS benchmark study, we were taking a massive survey of lots of startups at different sizes and growth rates. And we're trying to better understand what is a, a good activation rate? What is a good way to measure activation? You know, What is conversion rate of free trial if you ask for a credit card or don't ask for a credit card or those sorts of things? So I invite your listeners to participate in that study. We will be announcing the 
the survey soon. And then, you know, if this is published after that's released, please go take a look. Um, we really don't want product folks or growth folks to feel lonely in their roles. And we want them to have this data to back them up in the boardroom or, you know, when they're raising money or things like that to say, hey, look, my activation rate is outstanding compared to benchmarks. We're really on a great growth trajectory. So we invite you guys as listeners to come chat with us about that. Um, and if you have any inputs or anything like that too, I'd love to hear about product metrics that you see as you know, up and coming or sort of outdated or things like that too. Yeah. So I guess on the, the benchmarks note too, I will add that I have downloaded a lot of different benchmark reports mm -hmm. from a bunch of different industries. And usually you get like this PDF and you got to like scroll through it and hunt for anything that's actually relevantly useful to you. Mm -hmm. But what the OpenView team has really done is actually easy to hone in on. Okay, this is, let's say you're at 1 million RR. You can kind of hone into that specific type of business and look at what are those actual metrics that matter to me that are specific to that kind of business. So I really say, well done on that part because it's useful. And that's the biggest thing. You're, you don't want to spend the whole day looking for benchmarks. <laughs> to be honest, you want to find something that's really useful for you. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you, you know, you're throwing that in a slide to present at the last minute. So yeah, I'll let our marketing team know they work really hard on that. And I think they've done an exceptional job. Absolutely. And so where can people find out more about you and some of your work? Yeah. Well, so I am currently at OpenView Partners. So anytime uh, you want to learn more about OpenView, our portfolio companies and the go-to-market team, which I'm on, um, I also have a lot of great colleagues that are, you know, take on different aspects of product-led growth, including pricing and packaging and business development. They can just visit us at openviewpartners.com or on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Sam, for coming on the podcast. This has been a blast chatting with you.